Some of you have heard me speak before about my interest in pragmatic approaches to meditation. Such approaches seek to balance uh, the best of traditional Buddhism with what we know here in the early 21st century. One significant figure in this movement, broadly speaking, is Chogyam Trumpa, who died in 1987 at the far too young an age of 48 from health complications following a heart attack. You'll sometimes hear a title added to the end of his name, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. Uh, that's a Tibetan honorific that means precious one. How many of you have heard of Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche? So quite a few. Okay. Uh, today he's remembered as an inspiring, charismatic, and controversial meditation teacher. He was technically the 11th descendant in a line of important teachers in one of four main schools of Tibetan Buddhism, and he helped promote a non-sectarian approach within the Tibetan tradition, which sought to bring together all the valuable teachings of the different schools free of sectarian rivalry. In his early years, he received a thorough traditional monastic education. It was named the head of a group of monasteries in Tibet. But a major turning point came in 1959 when he was 20 years old. The Chinese Communist Party took control of Tibet, and he was forced to flee his native country. Along with a few other monks, he escaped on foot and horseback over the Himalayas uh, to India. Uh, Tenzin Gyatso, some of you will remember, the 14th Dalai Lama, was forced into exile from Tibet the same year. Trungpa moved to England in 1963, where he studied comparative religion, philosophy, and fine arts at Oxford University. And in 1967, he moved to Scotland and founded the first Tibetan um, Buddhist practice center in the West. Shortly thereafter, a variety of experiences, including a car accident that left him partially paralyzed on his left side, led to the decision uh, to give up his monastic vows and to work as a lay teacher. During his lifetime, he published 14 books. Uh, the first of these was in 1969, Meditation in Action. The next year, 1970, was another major turning point in his life. He got married, he moved to the United States, and he opened a meditation center in Vermont. Now, it's important to be honest that the person he married was a 16-year-old girl from an upper-class English family who was one of his students. For anyone curious, you can read her perspective in her memoir, Dragon Thunder, My Life with Chogyam Trumpa. Part of what she has said for herself is that there was a slightly different cultural context because people in Tibet tended to marry a lot younger than they do in the West. She says, from my perspective, I was not really attached to the conceptual norms I had grown up with. To a certain extent, I'd already rather radically rejected the culture of my childhood. I really wasn't looking at it from the reference point of whether it was appropriate or not. I simply had this unbelievable connection with him that felt to me very natural. I think for me, you can say the proof is in the pudding. I don't feel I was exploited because this was not a casual encounter. This was something that developed into a deep, meaningful, lifelong relationship. On the other hand, she concludes, I'm not saying that I would condone for other people 28-year-olds sleeping with 15-year-olds, which is how old they were when they first had an encounter. 
They did stay married. They had four sons together. And it was 1970. It was in the wake of the countercultural um, movements of the 1960s. But Trunkpa also reportedly had sexual relationships with many other of his students, by no means all of his students. I'm not trying to say that every student of Chogan Trumpa who go into the thousands, so, but many. Uh, he also seriously abused alcohol all the way up through the end of his life and other drugs. In the spirit of fairness, it may also be important to name that similar clergy congregate dynamics were happening in Unitarian Universalism at the time, and of course, not only Tibetan Buddhism and Unitarian Universalism, but Tibetan Buddhism and Unitarian Universalism. Uh, uh, At that time and sometimes since that time, including up and through today, so clergy congregate dynamics that parallel those guru-student dynamics. And while there's much good that came from and has come from the sexual revolution of the 1960s, there is also a shadow side in which sexual freedom created opportunities for abuse. Certainly sexual unfreedom also had its fair share of abuse. The blasé attitude was often along the lines of, stop being so puritanical, it'll be fine. In a few cases, maybe it was fine. In many cases, it was not fine. Lasting harm and damage was done to individuals, to congregations, to other spiritual communities. I strongly recommend the courageous lecture delivered last year at UU General Assembly by my colleague, the Reverend Gail Seavey, titled, If Our Secrets Define Us, where she talked about pretty directly a lot of this in Unitarian Universalism, including, I think, pretty bravely and in this case appropriately naming names. As our movement has sought to learn from misconduct in the past, a few years ago, the UU Ministers Association distilled our sexual ethics guidelines to a, it used to be like, you know, quite a page, quite lengthy. They distilled it down to 21 words. I will not engage in sexual contact, sexualized behavior, or a sexual relationship with any person with whom I serve as a minister. If a minister chooses to enter into a relationship with someone for whom they have served as a minister, the ministerial relationship must end, and there are now recommended best practices for transparency and accountability for transitioning to a non-ministerial relationship. At this point, I have in some ways moved far afield from the life and teachings of Chogyam Trumpa. But as I began to explore his life and teachings more broadly, because I just kept hearing his name, I wanted to learn more about him, I discovered that I, I just don't know how to talk about him at all responsibly without addressing this larger context of power dynamics and sexual misconduct that we have greater clarity about today than we did in 1970 and into the 80s. Although I will say, perhaps the clarity was not so much absent then as much as there was a lack of processes for holding abusers, abusers accountable that are much more accessible today in the wake of the Anita Hill hearings and related movements, even as the current system remains far from perfect. Returning to Trump's story, why mention him at all today? The main reason is that he's still revered in many quarters. He's still incredibly influential. Uh, uh, Despite his major ethical shortcomings in some areas, it is nevertheless true that he had a particular genius for presenting traditional Buddhist teachings in a way that was incredibly accessible um, and understandable for a Western audience. He was a major trailblazer and innovator in bringing Buddhism to the West. 
One significant part of his legacy was the founding of Naropa University in 1974 in Boulder, Colorado. Named after the 11th century Indian Buddhist sage, um, Naropa University became the first Buddhist-inspired academic institution in the United States to become accredited. It remains only one of a handful of such institutions. It's centered on the paradigm of contemplative education. The school began making a name for itself almost immediately when, for the first summer session, Trungpa invited beat poets, uh, Allen Ginsberg, Ann Waldman, John Cage, Diane DePrima, to lead sessions. I mean, this is the sort of um, rock star he was in that, art, you know, that world, so to speak, uh, to, that he could attract these beat poets to come. They called themselves the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. Kerouac had died a few years earlier, some of you may recall, in 1969 at the far too young an age of 47. A few years after founding Naropa, another significant part of Trungpa's legacy was founding the Shambhala Training Program, named after a legendary kingdom that was said to be founded on Enlightenment principles. One of the main goals was to teach Westerners that meditation was about so much more than what happens on your meditation cushion, that it was about integrating all of that mindfulness and heartfulness and awareness and insight into all aspects of your everyday life in our modern secularized um, world. There are now hundreds of Shambhala centers around the globe, including one in Baltimore and one in D.C., Trungpa's final move was to Nova Scotia in Canada in 1986, not long before his death in 1987. Some of you may be familiar with the teachings of Pema Chodron, who I um, really a powerful, profound Buddhist teacher that's still with us. Um, she was a student of Trogan Trungpa. As far as I know, she did not sleep with him, so that's what I don't want to, in bringing that up, make it perpetuate the stereotype, right? Uh, uh, she is the author of many beloved books. She's the director of Gampo Alley in Nova Scotia that Trungpa founded. Uh, today, um, Sakyong Mipam, the eldest son of the four children that Chogyam Trungpa had uh, with Diane Mukpo, is the one who runs the Shambhala organization. Depending on how deeply you want to dive into this perspective, there's actually a 10-part collected works of Chogim Trumpa, each volume of which weighs in at many hundreds of pages, as in like 500-plus many pages, sometimes six, seven, eight hundred pages. So we're talking like 5,000-plus pages of, of writing. Uh, the advice, which I'm really not interested in, I don't really have time for that, uh, the advice I received from many people much more familiar than I am with the Shambhala tradition was to actually start with volume three of his collected works. There's a way in which he was still kind of figuring things out with the first volume. And there's a way in which, to be frank, often people start to repeat themselves uh, at a certain point. So that volume three skips over some of his early writings in England and starts with some of his best material um, when he was first coming into his own in the United States and really discerning that intersection between traditional Buddhism and Western culture and what Buddhism might look like in the West in light of modern psychology and Western culture. Or for a much shorter version, you can start with two of the most important books collected into that volume three. Uh, the first is called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. Uh, it was based on lectures in 1970 and 1971. Or the second book is The Way of, uh, the Way of Freedom, no, The Myth of Freedom and the Way of Meditation, based on lectures between 71 and 73. They're each just about 200 pages. 
So in reflecting on this mixed legacy of figures like Chogyam Trumpa, one of the most helpful frameworks that I've found is from the philosopher Ken Wilbur. It's what he calls the level line fallacy. Each of us has the potential to progress through stages of development along different parallel lines. There are stages of kinesthetic development. So, you know, babies learn to hold their neck up, and then they learn to roll over, to crawl, to walk, to run. And some people even reach Olympic levels of kinesthetic development that are really beyond either the aptitude or inclination of most of us. There are also stages of progress of cognitive development as babies learn to differentiate their sense of self from the environment, then to talk, to read, to write, leading all the way to world-class levels of cognitive development along the lines of winning a Nobel Prize or something like that. There are similar stages of spiritual development, of aesthetic development, of moral development, of emotional development, and more. And here's the key insight of the level line fallacy. Each of these lines in some ways, I don't want to um, overstate this metaphor, but in some ways they are um, non-intersecting parallel lines. Yes, I realize that's a tautology that all parallel lines are not intersecting, but that they they uh, don't necessarily relate to one another. This framework helps explain how, for example, we can have an NFL football player with world-class kinesthetic development who is arrested for domestic violence, a serious deficit of certain levels of spiritual, moral, and emotional development. Or consider how an artist might have heightened emotional and aesthetic development, but might be, I don't know, clumsy kinesthetically. This is not a commentary on all artists or athletes. No emails, please. (laughs) Rather, the point is to recognize that someone like Chogin Trumpa might have legitimate world-class spiritual insight, but be tragically underdeveloped in other areas. There can be a seductive temptation that, to think that someone, you just sort of intuitively, without really thinking about it, to assume that someone who is super developed in one area must be equivalently developed in all other areas. But if we take a step back, we can begin to perceive that it is perhaps predictably the case that a maniacal focus on one or a few areas will leave one almost inevitably underdeveloped in other areas. The level line fallacy is a reminder to be more realistic about those who are lifted up on pedestals in one area. And yes, I realize I'm currently standing on a platform. But for each of us, this insight is an invitation to hold the mirror up to ourselves. For me, learning more about Trumpa has been an important process of wrestling with the legacy of someone who was at the forefront of teaching meditation in a way that was pragmatic and westernized and deeply transformative in a positive way for many thousands of students then and now. But it's also important to be honest about the shadow sides of our histories. Uh, I'll have to plan another sermon that goes more into the teachings of Chogin Trumpa, but for now, I'll conclude by beginning to, by inviting you to experience a meditation practice that is influenced by the pragmatic, secularized tradition that he helped pioneer. Vincent Horn, one of the co-founders of my own current practice community of Meditate.io, is a graduate of Naropa University. He's deeply formed by this university that Trungpa helped found, although Vince attended years after uh, Trungpa's death. As I said earlier, Trungpa emphasized that meditation practices were not only about what happens on your meditation cushion, but about integrating mindfulness and heartfulness, awareness and insight into all aspects of our lives. 
Since today is the UUCF annual business meeting, I'll add even meetings. So I'd like to invite you to experiment with a practice that I was taught called mindful meetings. In this meditation, we'll seek to settle our minds and to soften our hearts for participating in a meeting. So again, if you're comfortable doing so, I invite you to close your eyes, to assume a seated meditation posture, sitting up straight, relaxed but alert, with your hands resting comfortably in your lap. One trick is to kind of put your uh, elbows at your side and then let your hands drop. So kind of take your, el- uh, your elbows, put them to your side, and then let your hands drop there. See if that's maybe a comfortable place. And let's begin by noticing your body. Notice the space that your body takes up. Allowing your sitting bones to fall even more toward the earth. Allowing your spine to straighten even more toward the sky. Open yourself to the inherent nobility of that posture, of an embodiment of our UU first principle, of the inherent worth and dignity of every person the basic goodness that is in every person. And now, noticing the sounds in this room. And noticing your breathing. Sensing your breath as it moves in and out. And when your mind becomes absorbed in something other than breathing, just relax into this knowing and gently return to breathing in, to breathing out, and to noticing the body breathing itself. Allow planning future stories of anticipating, allowing those to fade into the background. Noticing also the emotions, the feelings that may be present, allowing them to recede into the background and fall away. And see if you can relax just a little more being attentive, kind of scanning your body, giving any piece that needs permission to relax, permission to relax. May the body relax.
Now, cautious, now, consciously calling to mind the meeting some of us will attend in a few minutes or the next meeting that you will attend, I invite you to set an intention for this meeting. Note that tension, honor it, and allow it to fade away with the breath as you sit here. Now bringing your attention to your heart, allowing your mind to descend as if down a spiral staircase into your heart. See if you can soften in this area. May the body and heart soften, allowing an opening, a space that we might connect with the others in this room. During meetings, it can be challenging to stay fully present. What area of your body can you set an intention to return to if and when you become absorbed in something other than what is happening in the arising and passing away of each new present moment. Maybe it's your hand resting in your lap. Maybe it's your feet connected to the ground. Maybe it's the home base of returning to your breath. Spend just a few moments practicing allowing that cue to remind you to return and invite you to return to the present moment. And when you're ready, I invite you to gently open your eyes, begin returning to this room, but continuing in the spirit of meditation. If you haven't already, continuing in that spirit of meditation, just look around this room a little. See if you can notice the space in this room. And as you do so, continue to connect with that area of your body that you're intending to use as an anchor. And whenever your mind becomes absorbed in something other than what is happening right now, and now, and now, and now, gently return to your anchor while noticing the space in this room. May you and may we have a fruitful and productive meeting. So I'll say just another thing or two, that Van Morrison song, Enlightenment, I don't know what it is. Uh, I sometimes think uh, better, uh, not sometimes think, some translators say a better translation of enlightenment is awakening, that it's a, certain, it's a waking up to a certain way of, uh, uh, Chogyam Trumpa talked about it as getting the cosmic joke, that this sort of, of, of the 
you know, of, of unmasking in a lot of ways it's about letting go than it is about, um, and it's not necessarily something you achieve. Uh, in the same way that, that awakening is probably a better translation of enlightenment, uh, a better translation of that word dukkha, which means suffering, it's probably unsatisfactoriness, that there's a certain sense in which Buddhist practices are allowing us to let go of this sense of, un, of unsatisfactoriness. The, and, and it is about non-attachment, but it's also about a deep, taste of interdependence of how we are deeply connected and how our ego is sort of a, a lie. It's a persona. It stays with us. You know, there's a great book by Jack Cornfield called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. You know, or that Van Morrison thought about chop wood, carry water, right? There's an old uh, Zen saying about before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. So, uh, but, but we chop water in a different way, right? That way we carry water. And then we're really with that. So, um, the final thing I'll say is there's, a, I think, a helpful saying by Category Roshi that is, the watcher is the last stand of the ego. Part of what uh, many initial Buddhist practices, they're about cultivating this watcher stance so that instead of just reacting, instead of just immediately reacting to whatever happens to us, we develop uh, an ability to notice our thinking and not have to believe all our thoughts. We develop an ability to notice I'm, you know, I'm, anger is arising, right? Instead of just being angry, we develop that watcher stance. But in some ways, the watcher is the last stand of the ego because in some ways, enlightenment is not something one achieves. It is something, to the extent I understand it, it is the ego, it is that sense of the ego actually being obliterated. But then you do come back to, you still have a persona. You're still in the world. You're still an embodied being. There's a lot of, and that was part of what Chogin Trumpo was really good at doing was sort of, getting rid of the nonsense and actually lifting a lot of the veil and mystery around things and talking about what he actually had experienced and what he actually, and trying to be transparent about that. So that was part of the gift that he brought to Buddhism as a West. So as you prepare to go into this day and into the uh, days to come, uh, may you continue your journey in love, care for one another and care for this one earth, do justice and make peace and as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. Whatever taste of centeredness you've experienced, even as the hurricane of our lives continues around us, that goes with you into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with Thanksgiving. <laughs>